0: Welcome to Freedom's Ring, friends. This is your host, Alan Reinock, and today we've got a very interesting topic for you, one that uh, may be eye-opening to some. Our guest today, Asma Udin, Director of Strategy for the Center for Islam and Religious Freedom. And I think for some Americans, uh, you know, we have wondered, where is Islam on the topic of religious freedom? So, uh, Asma, welcome to Freedom's Ring. Thank you. Happy to be here. It's a delight to have you with us. So, Tell us about the Center for Islam and Religious Freedom, and, and what is it that the center does?
1: Sure. So, the Center for Islam and Religious Freedom, the acronym being surf based here in Washington, D.C., and we're, it was founded about a year ago, and it's focused on all things at the intersection of Islam, Muslims, and religious liberty, and there's quite a bit that, that happens at that intersection. It might seem to sound like a niche topic, but as many anyone reading the news can tell, it probably one of the the hottest topics in sort of global news and politics right now. And so the course and scope of our work covers all issues of Islam and Muslims as both the majority and the minority. So often we have different political groups talking about one or the other, but no one's really talking about the two of them together. Either some people are interested in Muslims as minorities, uh, typically in the West, and the issues that they're facing these days, while other people tend to dwell on the, the status of religious minorities in Muslim-majority countries, and we kind of cover both. And we do so through both religious bases, kind of looking at Islamic law and scripture as a source of actually advancing the human rights and advancing the protection of religious freedom. And we also look at it through the lens of secular law um, and the way that some of those religious teachings can be translated into secular legal protections.
0: So I I guess at the outset, given that you're um, inside the Beltway, as it were, in our nation's capital, um, is the center primarily dealing with you know policy and analysis, or does it also do what I would call activism?
1: So actually, our primary focus um, is really about cultivating the religious scholarship around uh, religious liberty, so the Islamic religious scholarship. That's sort of like the the beginning, you know, concept of Sir. Was, was based on that. And then given my own background um, over eight years of working on religious liberty litigation on behalf of people of all different faiths, um, then we added a secular or sort of legal and policy component to it. Uh, but in fact, our, our, our major focus is uh, the, that religious component.
0: Well, and I think that's important. You know, one of the observations I've had over the years is that, um, you know, as we've seen the focus on terrorism that is done in the name of Islam, that gets a lot of media attention and uh, attention for kind of the uh, jihadist ideology uh, behind it. What we don't hear enough about in the media, and I think it's the media's fault, frankly, is that there is an alternate uh, you know, theology in uh, the Islamic tradition that's very strongly, uh, you know, supportive of religious freedom and does not condone violence in the name of religion.
1: Right, and it's not just the question of it being an alternative theology. theology. Um, a, it's, it's a much more sort of the theology of the majority, the vast majority of Muslims, um, and it's also the more authentic, right? It's, it's something that's actually authentic to the religion, not so muddled in politics, which terrorism is very much about geopolitics. Um, and kind of using Islam as a, as a weapon or a cover of sorts in an attempt to either, you know, uh, to take the politics to another level or to be able to just speak to people and to garner support using certain religious terminologies. And that's a separate conversation. So um, I just want to say it's not just that it's alternative, but it's alternative in that it's the the predominant view and also the more authentic view.
0: Well, I'm certainly glad to hear you say that. You know, forgive me if my comments are somehow taken to uh, legitimize jihadist theology as somehow authentically Islam. I will make a disclaimer, I am not a scholar of Islam, and I I am not competent to say what is legitimate Islamic theology. So I'll defer, you know, I'm glad that there are organizations like yours, uh, and frankly, I wanted to do this show, is I think our listeners need to understand better where mainstream Islam is on these subjects of religious freedom. Um, Now, I understand you had previously worked with the Beckett Fund, which is essentially a a Christian-based organization that works for religious freedom for people of all faiths. And, and earlier in the show, you mentioned, you know, the, there's two issues, the issues of Muslims as a minority, uh, as it were, in Western countries like the United States, and the issue of uh, religious minorities such as Christians in, in Muslim-majority countries, such as some of the Middle Eastern countries. Is your organization's work uh, devoted to promoting religious freedom for, uh, for both sets of minorities?
1: Absolutely. I mean so I should first start by clarifying, um, as a the longtime Beckett's here, that the Beckett fund is not based on any any particulars or religious group or religious beliefs. So it's not well yes, a number of our play, uh, of the Beckett clients were Christian and many people who work there were Christian, it's actually not affiliated with any faith community. Um and, you know, my time at Beckett was absolutely, you know, critical in terms of shaping and educating me in terms of religious liberty as a concept that applies to all. And it's not something that can be authentic if it's, if it's not applicable um, across religious communities and religious belief systems. And so, yes, during my time there, I was able to work on cases involving a wide range of faith traditions, um, both from conservative Christian cases, you know, working on the Hobby Lobby uh, case, for instance, all the way down to, you know, the Minority cases, such as Muslim cases that we had as cases at the Supreme Court, um, when a Muslim prisoner who wanted to be able to grow the beard in accordance with his religious beliefs. And then we also had uh, less well-known um, religious groups that we also uh, represented. And so, again, bringing that here to my work at SURF, um, it's critical here that we continue to defend the religious liberty of all. So it's really the is kind of Muslims, being inspired by their religion to defend religious freedom for all. Kind of what I was doing at Beckett, but, you know, really kind of making this case that what's inspiring us here and what's supporting our work is Islamic religious scholarship. And so we'd work on, as I said earlier, Muslims as minorities, Muslims in the West, and the, all of the many complicated issues that, that they're dealing with, um, but also religious minorities, Christians and others in Muslim-majority countries. And oftentimes this sort of The biggest sort of victims of religious freedom persecution in majority countries actually tends to be Muslims themselves. Because the idea is always that the state is pronouncing a particular version of Islam that it's going to support. Uh, Anyone who sort of descends from that um, ends up kind of being persecuted um, and having to deal with uh, various hardships. And so it's Muslims, Christians, and many other groups.
0: And I think that's something that a lot of folks in America don't understand is. You know, we hear about Christian persecution in some countries like Iran or or others, but we don't realize that there are far more Muslims being persecuted who are not the right kind of Muslims.
1: Yeah, and again, it goes to this, I mean, ultimately, if the state is involved in religious affairs, it's because it's serving the state's interests. And so the state is always going to protect the version of religion that I think best serves its interests. And so any, you know, Muslim who comes up with new and innovative interpretations or who might have a different way of sort of living out their faith, anything that's kind of threatening to what the state wants uh, to promote and preserve um, is going to face resistance.
0: Sure. So, you know, if I may, the question I think that many Americans are interested in hearing about from, you know, an Islamic scholarship point of view there's a lot of rhetoric about what is Sharia law and is it something that should be regarded as a danger or a threat? Uh, and as you know, there have been a number of states that have introduced anti Sharia uh, bills. Um, can you speak to that issue? And assuming that you feel that Americans have nothing to fear from Sharia law, can you explain, you know, why not?
1: Sure. So these laws are introduced and in some cases have passed in these various states um, are very much attempting to solve a problem that doesn't exist. Um, I mean, the first thing it's saying is that the American legal system doesn't know how to deal with um, claims based on religious law. Right. And that's like the ultimate or thrust of it in order for it to say, okay, now we need this initiative to solve this problem. But in fact, that problem doesn't exist as the, the U.S. legal system has worked quite well In the face of religious arbitration based not just on Sharia, but also uh, canon law and halakha, which is Jewish uh, law and a wide variety of religious traditions. Um, And the way that usually works is that religious groups um, submit their, some of their personal issues, such as uh, divorce and inheritance, to various, to their own or religious arbitration. And in order to get the judgment of that arbitration enforced, you have to take it to a civil court. Again, a non-religious civil court that then has to check it to make sure that nobody, for instance, was coerced into submitting to this arbitration, that the award was fair and in conformance with U.S. public policies. And only once it kind of like checks for all these things does it actually then force that judgment. So we have a system. It's worked quite well to the extent that some of the people pushing these laws have kind of picked a one-off case where things, you know, didn't, you know, work right. Even in those cases, you'll see the systems are self-correcting where the person, where the case was appealed and then the appellate court got it right. And so, again, the anti-Sharia laws are largely about fear-mongering. They're not really about solving a problem that exists. The U.S. legal system has worked quite well in its sort of preservation of both U.S. public policy and diversity of religious beliefs.
0: Well, I you know, I'm not familiar with any of the specific kinds of you know, Islamic laws that might deal with divorce or inheritance, as you mentioned. I I do know that uh, the Jewish community for a long time has, you know, they have among the Orthodox certain courts and resolve some of these kinds of issues. And we've never really heard um, any public outcry about what's happening within the Orthodox Jewish community. I would expect that you know, this would be a similar non-issue for those who are sufficiently religious in the Islamic context to prefer to resolve their conflicts within an Islamic legal context.
1: Right, and that's correct. And the, and the importance that people don't understand about these various anti-Sharia laws or initiatives is that if enacted, they would impact religious arbitration for all groups. Uh, our, the Establishment Clause in our Constitution forbids with singling out a particular religion for disfavor. So if we're going to pass uh, various laws to stop religious arbitration, that means it's going to impact the Jews and Christians who want to turn to their own religious law um, to settle their own disputes. Uh, So that's an important point. So while they're called that, the, the one law that's been litigated, it was the one in Oklahoma, it was the original version of it, um, it was a ballot initiative, and the original wording of it specifically singled out Sharia, and that was considered pretty blatantly unconstitutional. So now the new, the sort of the revised approach is to just sort of term it foreign law, um, or have some more generic-sounding um, language. And ultimately, if passed, um, would impact religious groups uh, across the board.
0: Well, yeah, I could see where it could seriously interfere with um, Orthodox Jews practicing. Uh, some of their traditions. Um, And uh, again, I'm not familiar with the specific Muslim traditions, but, um, you know, America has always been a country of immigrants, of people of different cultures, and we've managed to work it out. But, you know, I guess the fear and its worth, well, we're out of time it looks like, so we're not going to be able to get to that topic today. Um, but this has been very, very instructive and helpful. And I think that just the idea that there really is a mainstream Islamic tradition and commitment to religious freedom uh, is probably eye-opening to, uh, to some of our listeners. Uh, our guest today, Asma Udin, Director of Strategy for the Center for Islam and religious freedom. We're grateful for the Center's efforts to promote religious freedom. And Asma, thanks for being with us on Freedom's Ring today.
1: Great, thank you for having me.
0: And as we close, we want to remind our listeners here at Freedom's Ring, we don't just talk the talk about religious freedom. We provide legal services to those suffering religious discrimination. Check out our legal resources page at churchstate.org, churchstate.org. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Reinach. Until next week, let freedom ring.